Ironically, pesto of all the sauces is the least like a pest as it's always welcome at my dinner table. Duck sauce, the sauce so nice they named it twice. If you gave me a choice of lock, stock, or barrel, I'd take stock any day. It's extra fun to say Worcestershire when you think of the silent syllables as dirty little secrets. The other name for duck sauce is orange sauce, if you were curious. Some people refer to guacamole as a sauce, but I refuse to believe them. When attempting to list sauces, you'd be surprised how easy it is to forget applesauce. So many sauces! Welcome now to Sauceum, the podcast about sauces that are awesome, parentheses previously the podcast known as Out of All Doors. Hello. And welcome to the new Sawsome, the podcast about sauces that are awesome, parentheses, previously the podcast known as Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and that's the whole complete title, because if someone were to search the show on iTunes, we wanted to leave in the old keywords, so, you know, you could still find the podcast and we could maintain our rating and so on. Hopefully after a while we can cut it down. Anyway, you may have noticed the podcast is about sauces now, rather than about the outdoors, which was getting a little boring. You know, when I began this podcast all those four months ago, I pulled out a yellow legal pad and freeform brainstormed a list of things I loved. After two hours, I looked down at that legal pad and saw I had listed two things, outdoors and sauces. So I flipped a coin and Out of All Doors was born. Well, I now realize that coin toss misled me. Anywho, all you really need to know is the outdoors are out, sauces are in. And nothing is off limits. From hollandaise to remoulade, from tartar sauce to buffalo sauce. Who knows, we might even broaden your horizons with an exotic look to the east with teriyaki or get wild with some pico de gallo. Ay caramba. I'm Casey By with Sawsome, the podcast about sauces that are awesome. And I am here today with a very interesting young fellow who goes by the name Lil Dollop. And, well, let's just let him explain what he does that's so interesting. Well, my name's Lil Dollop, and I like to rap, but I especially like to rap about one thing in particular, and the thing I like to rap about is of sauces. Well, I find that very interesting, Lil Dollop, and I, I'm sure our, our listeners do too. Can you tell me, though, is there actually a large sauce-based uh, hip-hop scene or undercurrent currently that uh, we just might not be aware of? Uh, no, it's just me. It's, it's kind of a weird thing to rap about and uh what what got you interested in rapping about sauces well where where does your love of sauces come from um i come from like the old school like mcnugget style so for me it really all goes back to like sweet and sour the barbecue um sometimes ranch but definitely ketchup. Very interesting. Well, uh, you know, let's uh, not beat around the bush. Uh, you know, what people want to hear is is your expertise in this, your your uh, very unique style and uh, gifted abilities in rapping about sauces. So uh, why don't you take it away? I'll do that. Every day I put sausage on my plate Sriracha, ozu, bolognese, queso, pork wine, and bernese Sausage Sausage on my plate Sauces, there's none that I hate I'll eat every sauce ever known If you give me spaghetti, add some Newman's own Sauces 2015, enter the gravy All right. Well, we've been speaking to Little Dollop, a uh, very young and very talented hip-hop artist from the area who um, has a love of sauces, as do we all. Uh, So to take us out, uh, Little Dollop, would you like to uh, grace us with uh, one more of your very unique sauce-based raps? Um, no, that's... I just started. That's the only one I have. 
I'll do it again. Sauces on my plate. Sauces. Uh, that's that's all right, little dollop. Uh, back to you, Adam. See, there are literally an infinite number of fascinating avenues down which we can take this sauce thing. We are off to an amazing, no, a sawsome start. Five minutes in, and this is already about a million times more sawsome than the last four months of Kata. This is a podcast about leaves, worms, and, and rain, or whatever. Gentlemen's Mills is fully on board with our new format change, and just to prove it, they've sent us a special promotional mailing that details their extensive lineup of new and classic sauces. These are just some of the highlights, of course, and you should really do your best to get them to send you the complete list, although I'm not entirely sure how you would accomplish such a thing. Good luck! Mossy Sauce, our own 2011 vintage applesauce. Saucy Sauce, our most viscous sauce, perfect for shoving into a troublesome blabbermouth's yapper and finally curbing some of that sauciness. Toothpaste, a tomato paste made gritty through the innovative inclusion of ground-up teeth. Sing a sauce of sixpence, a bouillabaisse of rye, bread, and honey. Birds love it. Water Sauce, no, it's not just water. Sosta Sauce, liquefied pasta to be poured over pasta sauce, or pour it over pasta to make it extra pasta-y. Sawsome, sawsome. An awesome sauce made out of possum. Boil, boil, boil in trouble. A vegetable and peanut mix boiled into an unrecognizable goop. This sauce was boiled way too long, if we're speaking from the heart. Sonny, have you seen my sauce? A pressurized cane full of marinara. Sauce sprays forth from the base upon pulling the trigger. We recommend cleaning the cane prior to deployment if the sauce is going to be used for human consumption. Jamie Eason's From Soft to Sauce. Try the Alfredo sauce that thrust this fitness icon from the post-pregnancy blues to the cover of Misfits magazine. Fresh fettuccine forces fat to fail. We're forbidden from claiming any formal endorsement from or association with international fitness icon Jamie Eason, but we kind of imply it anyway. Taste butt aside. So spicy you'll never taste again. Poison Cocktail. This sauce tastes strongly of poison to discourage you from eating enough to kill you. Plum out a calf. C-A-F-F. Highly caffeinated plum sauce. What if love were a sauce? It would be nothing like this. Tone Ale. What's afoot? A thin sauce that is downright melodic. Fur Low. Our lowest calorie fur sauce. High in fiber. Gab Sauce. Chatterboxes love this sauce and we have no idea why. Hot dog ketchup. This ketchup has already been on at least one hot dog before it gets to you. Copperhead salsa. Dip your chips in it if you're aiming to sober up. Won't get it done by the time you get behind the wheel, but if you like the taste of copper, you mind less and less. Stolen from the vine. Green unripe tomatoes taken too soon from their gardens and mashed into a premature sauce. Taste of spittoon. Award-winning sauce from esteemed chef Jean-Pierre Spittoon, whose signature sauce is a thick, clear-colored delight. Awesome sauce. Truly our mildest sauce. Teen Wolf presents Hollandaise sauce. The only Hollandaise sauce endorsed by none other than old sensation the Teenaged Wolf. This sauce will have you howlin'. Howlin' for Hollandaise sauce, that is, much like the beloved pubescent wolfman child. Now comes in a 50-ounce jar. Horsier sauce. Even more horsey. Sauce sampler. Many of our sauces mixed together in random proportions and delivered to you in an unlabeled tin can. Simple sauce. Simple sauce can technically go on everything. It's impossible to hate or have strong feelings of any kind about simple sauce. Tarbecue sauce. Tired of those wimpy barbecue sauces that don't give you the sauce experience you crave? Try tarbecue sauce if you can handle it. This sauce is taken directly from the La Brea Tar Pits, and it's 100% unfiltered tar. Use it on your steak or your ribs, unless, of course, you're too scared. Come on, princess, it's just tar. Eat it. Eat it. Good glory, look at you. Oh, I don't know if I should. Wah, wah. Listen, if it were too dangerous, we couldn't sell it, could we? So eat the tar, pansy. Don't be a little girl for once and eat the tar. Simple. Put it on whatever you want. Just eat it. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're still not eating it. 
tartar sauce has nothing to do with tartar sauce. This is hyper-concentrated tar as a sauce. We've been over this. It's tar and you eat it. Eat the tar. Gentlemen's Mills. It's essential to be gentle, by which we mean gentle. Bros, those were just our sponsors, and they were still awesome. You know what? <laughs> All right. You've earned this. You've made a awesome and successful podcast. Just tell them. All right, time for me to fess up. This is an Adam. This is Jason. You may remember me from my first appearance on Out of Old Doors two episodes ago where I was brought on to discuss the remarkable similarities between my and podcast host Adam Drent's voices. Uh, here's a clip of the two of us singing a duet. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. I'm the one, by the way, who sounds like an actual singer, and Adam is the other one, struggling through the other lines. Not that it's his fault that he can't sing, but... Anyway, we had such a great time. I came back last month as well. There was some confusion, and we ran out of time or something, so I graciously bowed out of doing my segment. Here's a clip. Jason? Yes, Adam? Go home! Why are you here? Anyway, since that episode was released, Adam had um, reached out to me again and gave me a call, and when I didn't answer, left me the following voicemail. Beep! Hey, Jason, real quick, this whole podcast thing, talking about the stupid outdoors and all that, it's really just a drag, I'm bored with it, I'm done with it, I'm out, but I've got all these contributors on the hook and podcasting equipment, yada yada, and honestly, you were really just so great on the last appearances, and everyone thought you were so funny and such a great singer and loved you so much, why don't you have a go of it, maybe you can make work what I couldn't, what I'm saying is, show's yours if you want it, bro, alright, later, bye, click. So, yeah, Adam took off. He was an alright guy, but he didn't love you guys like I love you. I love you so much. You may have noticed that uh, last ep that I mentioned taking a lot of drugs at the time, which I don't really recall saying, but it was there on the recording, so I must have said it. Or Adam could have said it pretending to be me, because we do sound alike and I wouldn't put it past him. So either I actually wasn't taking drugs, or I was taking so many drugs that I don't even remember doing the drugs... So, for the love of you all, I stopped, or I just continued not doing drugs, other than these little pink pills I found in my pocket, and those just seem to help me focus, help me focus on making a awesome podcast for y'all, and they also keep me more consistent uh, internally, because before that, I had not had a bowel movement in maybe a month. Either way, I'm proud of me for realizing I had a problem, or for being the kind of person who would never touch drugs in the first place, other than the pink pills. Which, hey, I might have gotten a prescription for while I was taking the other drugs, and I was just in such a haze that I don't remember it now. Although I firmly believe I never was taking any drugs, so in that case I should remember having gotten a prescription. Anyway, because I love you so much, I'm committed to bringing you an awesome podcast. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Adam let you guys down. I'm not going to do that. He made a lot of mistakes. One thing he did, however, that was not a mistake was realize that the whole outdoors thing as a podcast theme was a mistake. I know some of you liked it. I even thought I liked it for an episode, but that was probably just the drugs talking if I was, in fact, on drugs, which is debatable. And then episode two and three and four were just so bad. Am I right? I'm right. Because if anything, if I was on drugs, like drugs should have made me like it more because drugs generally tend to make stupid stuff more tolerable, I think, but I wouldn't know because I've never touched a drug in my life other than the pink pills, which are in all likelihood a prescription. Although the name on the bottle does say, um, Eunice Thibodeau, which might have just been who I thought I was before getting the prescription to straighten me out. And it does say take once daily, and I've just more so been popping a handful every 10 minutes or so. In the end, all that matters is goodbye, Adam Drent. Goodbye, Out of All Doors and the boring stories about fishing and camping and farming or whatever. Hello, Sawsome, the podcast about sauces that are awesome. Sure, change can be uncomfortable, but I'm going to make this transition as natural and simple as possible. Really ease you into the new format. Okay, so you might remember Harrison, who used to talk about birds on the show. But you know what the new Sawsome manifesto is? 
Well, I'll tell you. It's that birds are not sawsome. Birds is dumb. So here's that guy talking about sauces instead of dumb birds. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. Let me first apologize for my behavior last episode. The holidays are a time for joy, and if I in any way sullied your yuletide cheer, I am sorry. I don't remember recording that segment, nor do I remember sending it to Adam, but I'm glad he chose to share it with you. My words, though muddled, were truthful, and that in the end is my aim in this process. Speaking of Adam, I received an email from him earlier today that indicated our podcast has changed formats. I'm told we'll now focus on sauces. I assume we'll primarily discuss their origins and uses, and while I can't say I'm particularly versed in the intricacies of most condiments, I believe I may have a thing or two to say about their relative impact on my life. I'm sure many of you were skeptical as to whether I could ever learn the inner workings of birdsmanship, and I think, last episode notwithstanding, I've proven capable of the task. In the spirit of truthfulness, however, I should add that I'm pressing on with regard to sauces because I fear this podcast might very well be my sole emotional conduit to and potentially from Eleanor. As for my thoughts on sauces themselves, I suppose I can start here. For an anniversary or birthday, I'm having some trouble recalling the grander particulars of the occasion. I took Eleanor to a restaurant known for their fondue, which is a French term for fancy dunking. I made reservations in advance, hoping to prove myself a, quote, active life participant. These are Eleanor's words, not mine. I'd never before cooked my own dinner in restaurants, so I was experiencing some anxiety leading up to the meal. Was there a timer, I wondered. Should I not wear long sleeves? Who would cut up the food chunks? Should I know beforehand which cheeses I like? At the table, my anxiety led to a slight but noticeable trembling. My efforts to prod at even an apple piece were unsuccessful. Eleanor said it looked as if I was riding the boring part of a roller coaster, so I excused myself and walked to the car to get some air. Outside, away from any fondue responsibilities, my mind calmed some, but I couldn't quite fight off a queasy sort of headache, not unlike the ones I get after prolonged showers. When I returned to the table, Eleanor forked a meat cube onto my plate, but I couldn't manage more than a nibble. I sipped on water while she cooked and served for herself. On the drive home, I pulled over to the side of the road so that Eleanor could be sick, I suppose because she ate most, if not all, of our cheese. I asked if she might be pregnant, but she didn't answer, as she was too busy groaning into the asphalt. We drove home in silence, and the next day we bought a cat, which she named after her junior high English teacher. I'm not sure what this anecdote means exactly, but this is the best I can do on such short notice. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy the new format. Sincerely, Harrison. We go into a kitchen. There are spoons, knives, forks, pans, pots, chefs, and ovens everywhere. But, even better... There are tons of sauces. We have entered the saucery. A mom serves her family a gross meal. I don't even know what it is, but it totally sucks. But then, one of the kids is like, Mom, do we have any ketchup? They do have ketchup, and he, like, douses his gross meal in ketchup and takes a bite, and it only tastes like one thing. Ketchup. Don't you wish we could just pour ketchup on all of our problems? That's deep. You know that's deep. This guy has a steak on his plate. He takes a bite and it's way, way too dry. The kitchen overcooked it, but it's not their fault because he ordered it well done. So that's what he gets, dry steak. But the meal isn't ruined because he reaches for the steak sauce. Some snooty people nearby are horrified, but he doesn't care about them. They're lucky he doesn't just stab them with his steak knife and dip them in sauce, the snobs. So there's this big bowl of spaghetti, but there's no sauce on it. Someone screwed up. Someone screwed up bad. You don't just serve spaghetti with no sauce. Who did this and why? You hear a crash from the pantry. You go in there and find that your husband has knocked a jar of good sauce on the ground and it shattered and all the sauce is ruined. He cowers away from you as you remove your belt and begin to strike him with it about the head and arms. No one wastes sauce in this family and gets away with it. No one! 
get a bunch of sauce from the kitchen because that's what we came in here for. So yeah, there's not really any more reason to stick around. We got the sauce, so yeah, it's time to leave the saucery. Here on Sauces Taste Great with Squall. Squall, previously out of all doors fishing expert, although still an expert in fishing, is now adding his expertise in sauces that taste great with fish to his repertoire on the show, which is awesome if you ask me. Adam never would have let him branch out like this, in my opinion at least. So, Squall, to get things started... That is it! This ends now! Uh, okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen... Welcome back, Adam Drent. Adam, you must have forgotten your toothbrush on your way to moving to Alaska or something and giving up the podcast to me as a gift, which is what you did because you got sick of doing it yourself and you saw how awesome I was as a contributor, so then you... Uh, you have had me tied up and gagged for the last two weeks. I've been gradually working my bonds loose and I was just now able to break free. No, <laughs> I. why would I do that, Adam? Plus, if I did do that... I would have then spent those two weeks brainwashing you so you no longer remembered that I did tie you up, and then I would have suggested the idea that you wanted to move to Alaska or something, and that you hated the podcast and had decided to give it to me, and then once the programming was complete, I would have put you in a cab and sent you off to the airport. Yeah, or you might have just, well, play the tape. You recorded it. Okay, this is brainwashing of subject Adam Duran session one. Before we get started, a handful more of the blue pills to get us nice and focused. Hey, Adam. Adam, douche. You're so sleepy and stuff. Look at this. I'm going to swing this watch. You watch. I don't have a watch. Shoot. Look at Okay, my phone has a clock in it. Look at that. And it's making you super tired and everything, looking at this phone, and shh, you're asleep. Three, two, one, snap, you're out. And now you want to move to Alaska or something, Adam? Adam, are you asleep? No, Jason. No, three, two, one, snap, you're asleep there. Look at the phone. Okay, you're moving to Alaska is what you want, and you're going to call and order a pizza and pay for it on your credit card, and it has banana peppers on it, and you like banana peppers, even though yesterday when I made you order a pizza with them, you said you hated them, but now you're hypnotized, and I see you like them, and they're your favorite, and they make you want to move to Alaska, because that's where you think banana peppers come from, maybe, now that you're brainwashed to think so. Adam? Yep. Why aren't you calling and ordering the pizza with banana peppers, your favorite, on it? <sighs> And after that nonsense, then you fell asleep for four hours. And when you woke up, you made me watch Pink Floyd live in Pompeii with the lights off while you sat directly in front of the TV and sporadically threw glow sticks at me. Oh, man. I forgot about those blue pills. Those went real quick. But let me be the bigger man here, Adam. I am very sorry I tied you up for a week. Two weeks. Okay, for the last two weeks and that I threw glow sticks at you. I am not sorry I made you watch Pink Floyd live at Pompeii because that concert is amazing. But I do apologize for sitting directly in front of the TV as I now realize you probably weren't able to totally experience it in its full awesomeness from your spot uh, tied to the chair on the other side of the room. So now... Adam, will you please forgive me, take your toothbrush, and move to Alaska, and give me your podcast and podcasting equipment and stuff, and maybe your house, since you won't need it, in Alaska, where when I snap my fingers, you will want to go to and also stay there until you are very old or until I get bored with doing the podcast, or it gets turned into a TV show by some network who appreciates what I'm doing and how awesome it is. Three, two, one, stop! Saying sawsome. Ooh, I have been kidnapped and tied up for two weeks, forced to eat banana peppers on pizza, which, by the way, are disgusting and crunchy like bugs, and who wants that? Who? Who would ever want that, Jason, on their pizza? And with all of that, hearing you say sawsome over and over has possibly been the worst part of this entire experience. Sawsome is not a word. It is to a word. It's a portmanteau, Adam, and I would know because I minored in portmanteaus at Berkeley. No, Jason! 
portmanteaus is not a minor at Berkeley, nor is it a minor at any university anywhere. And as you admitted last episode, you Googled what Berkeley was because you're too stupid to even know the name of a college. Play the clip. I am way too upset to find and play the clip, Adam. Oh, you know who should play the clip, maybe, Jason? You know who's real good at playing clips? Who? Your mother. I have him. I got him down, quick. Listeners, shoot him. Well, I have him down. I'm the real Adam, I promise. Listeners, you need to trust me. It's me, your host, Adam Drent. He's Jason, the imposter. You have to believe me. Do it. Shoot him. Do it now. Shoot him now. Do it now. Now. Jason? Huh. Yeah. I I mean, what? You're Jason. I'm Adam. The real Adam Drent. Jason? You're telling the listeners to shoot me, which, by the way, is really rude to begin with, but also, they're not here to be able to do that. You do understand that, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I really should give up the drugs. That is, if I've even been taking drugs. You have, Jason. Also, remember how we might sound alike, but we don't look anything alike? Yeah, so there's no way if someone were here to shoot either of us that they would mistake you, all six foot seven of you, with your two foot long braided beard for me. Yeah, but radio... All right, are you going to get off me, or am I going to need to punch you? Let's ask the drugs. Mm, They still really want the listeners to shoot you. Okay, I'm going to punch you in the face now, Jason. Uh Uh-huh. Ow! Ah! Not cool, Adam! Ow! Jason, you can't just, like, punch me back! It's true, listeners. He's the real Adam. Don't shoot me, listeners. Please don't kill me. Jason... They can't shoot you. They aren't here. Maybe if they clap their hands at him and say, I do believe. I believe in Jason. If you believe, listeners, clap your hands as loud as you can and repeat, I do believe in Jason. I do. If you want me to live. They're not going to. I'm getting a pop. Do you want a pop? Uh, I like a root beer, but if you don't have a root beer, my next choice would be whatever doesn't have caffeine or the least caffeine or just a juice. Do you have any apple juice? No, I don't have any juice. I have cherry Pepsi or Dr. Pepper. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm fine. Jason? Yeah, Adam? Would you uh, like to sing one last song before I call the cops? Oh, Adam, I would love to sing a song with you. And I'm sure after this, you're going to be dropping the format change to sauces and reverting back to the original Out of All Doors theme. Although, you know, I really would ask you to reconsider that move, seeing as Out of All Doors kind of... Well, proved itself to be kind of sucky while on the flippy flop. Sawsome, the podcast about sauces that are awesome, was a huge and immediate success. So to sort of hedge your bets and to try to retain your millions of new sauce-based fandom, I'd also be more than happy to come back every month to do my very own regular segment about sauces. Sawsome, the segment within the podcast, out of all doors, about sauces that are awesome. So I'll see you next month, Adam. All right, whatever, but you have to get off the drugs. I'm not making any promises whatsoever. Well... All's well that ends well, folks. Thank you for clapping, and thank you for believing in me. And let's wrap things up with a bang. Shall we, Adam? Sure. I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Sawsome Awesome Band featuring Mr. Tito Puente. What good is chicken without the mole? And what... Good is beef without the cheesy beefaroni. It's, it's in the sauce, yeah, yeah. 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 Take it, little dollar. Now let me hear you all. Tell me, good Lord. Tell me, what is your favorite sauce? Uh, I like a nice creamy Alfredo. And what about you, sir? This is Jason, and I love ketchup. And you? Uh, salsa is good. I mean, not like super spicy, like a medium, and just a little uh, on the side, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's in the sauce. Yeah, yeah, it's in the sauce. Yeah, yeah. 
it's in the sauce, yeah, yeah, 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 it's in the sauce, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah, very good. Now, Jason? Yes, Adam? Get the out of my house. Thank you for believing. Welcome back to Out of All Doors. So I'm back, Adam Drent. We've dealt with the Jason issue for now, but still I am beset by adversaries. Maya, the awful woman who stole our web address from us in order to mount a direct assault on all that we hold dear, has struck again. It's horrible, but I can't just look away. I can't ignore it. She still will not respond to my emails or answer my phone calls or text messages, but she must be listening. How else could she be so deft at twisting the knife she planted in my back? She knows us. She knows me. And she holds a personal grudge. I don't want to get into the specifics, but I may as well let you all know that Maya was my babysitter at one time. And yes, she was only two years older than me. It was admittedly awkward to be 13 and to have my care entrusted to a 15-year-old girl who, even then, despised the outdoors. And, of course, she grew to despise the outdoors even more after what happened, which she blames me for. Ridiculous. I hadn't heard from her for years before that fateful blog takeover. But she's back with nothing but a misplaced desire for revenge, apparently. God help us all. Listen to this new blog post she's written. Listen and shudder. Listen and tremble. She must be stopped. Five fantastic indoor activities for kids age five to your age. Number one, look at me. Hide-and-go-seek is isolating, teaches harmful antisocial habits, and often results in children remaining clandestinely in trees for years waiting to be found. Look at me is a fun indoor game that is just the opposite. One person closes his eyes and counts slowly to ten. Meanwhile, the other children huddle around him as conspicuously as they can. Whoever he sees first when he opens his eyes wins. <sighs> 2. Slip and Slide Take a piece of tarp at least 25 feet long and stretch it out on your floor. Don't have a 25-foot stretch of floor in your house? Knock down a few walls. Fill buckets of water from your bathtub and dump them out on the tarp till it's good and wet. Turn on the furnace and set the thermostat to 95 degrees. Wait three days or so for the house to heat up. Boy, you're ready now for a little cooling off, right? The last two steps are just what you need. Step one, slip. Step two, slide. <sighs> Number three is meatloaf. Mix one pound of ground beef and one pound of ground pork together in a large mixing bowl. Coarsely chop one large onion and combine with the meat. Add two teaspoons black pepper, one teaspoon salt, and a quarter cup of Worcestershire sauce. Add one cup of breadcrumbs and two large eggs to bind and mix thoroughly. Bake at 350 degrees in a greased 5 by 11 loaf pan for 40 minutes. Mmm, what's that smell? Number four, chocolate fountain. Nothing's more elegant than a chocolate fountain, but they're so expensive. Bet you didn't know you have everything you need to make your own right in your house. Just drain the water from your hot water heater and fill it up with all the kids' leftover Halloween candy. Make sure you take off the wrappers first. Then just turn on the tap and get ready for a sweet surprise. Great dipping ideas. Bananas, pretzels, breadsticks, and of course, milk. Number five, hide-and-go-seek. What better way to get to know all the secret places in your house? Under the couch, in the bathroom vanity, atop the ceiling fan, amidst the foliage of the burr oak in your two-story indoor terrarium? It doesn't stand a chance. Listeners, I will repeat my plea. Help me. Help us. Help out of all doors rid itself of this menace. We're just trying to make a nice, informative, celebratory podcast about the outdoors and look at all the trouble and strife that has befallen us. Come to our aid, listeners. Be a friend. Be a supporter. And drive out all who oppose us. We must overcome. We must not succumb. The enemy may sound like us. The enemy may have our proper URL. The enemy may appear on... Well... I'll get into that later, but we must be vigilant and we must stand firm. Please send Maya your displeased emails and leave unfavorable comments on her posts. And don't participate in any of her fantastic activities. We go down to the cellar to fetch some canned goods. 
some of which are so good they should be called canned very goods or in some cases even canned greats. But some of them, like the green beans, aren't that much better than those you'd buy at the store. Those we should call canned pretty goods. The wooden steps creak beneath our feet. The bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling in the middle of the room is too weak to penetrate the dark corners of the cellar. And it is in those corners that we sense their presence, hanging there and resenting ours, but not so much as to knock over the canned goods, canned very goods, and canned greats, thank goodness. If they wanted to knock over some canned pretty goods, cleaning up the broken glass would be a pain, but no one would shed any tears. We have entered the battery. A new high school needed a mascot. It came down to a choice between the charioteers and the bats. It was up to members of the school board to decide, so they took a vote. Everyone was in suspense while the votes were counted. There were two votes for the charioteers. There were well over 500 votes for the bats. There were only five people on the school board. What had happened? Bats had rigged the vote. The board elected to re-vote in a setting less vulnerable to tampering from bats. They locked themselves in a bomb shelter and voted again. This time, the charioteers only lost 89-2. to They had managed to eliminate most of the bats from the voting process, but the most clever ones were still tampering somehow. Hold on, said a board member. Two isn't enough votes to win, even if only five votes were counted. So the new high school became the home of the bats, but they were bad at sports, and someone changed the T in bats to a D on all of their signs, so they read, Home of the Bats. And no matter how many times they changed them back to T's, the next morning they would all be D's again, and no one ever figured out who was doing it. But all I know is that it would have had to have been a coordinated effort between many small people or animals with the power of flight, natural camouflage, and a propensity for nighttime operations. The old bat was at the end of the line. He was dying and everyone knew it. They gathered around him to ease his pain with peaceable facial expressions and good-natured eyebrow raising, which the old bat took in stride or seemed to. Let's say what we'll remember about him, said one of them. I'll go first. I will always remember him as young and strong. Another said, I'll remember him as experienced and wise. A third said, I'll remember him as an adorable baby. A fourth said, I'll remember him as an awkward adolescent, and I did not know bats could get acne. A fifth said, I'll remember him as a regal purple color, which he is not, but memory is strange and slippery. A sixth said, I'll remember him as the impetus, in death, for each of us to speak out loud for the first time ever. The others nodded in agreement, for indeed, none of them had ever spoken aloud before now. The old bat, on the other hand, had, but none of them would ever know that. A woman thought, if these trained bats can fly in perfect synchronization, why shouldn't I be able to start my own small business? This was, of course, a logical fallacy, but nonetheless, she was inspired. What she didn't know was that the bats were not flying in perfect synchronization on purpose, although they probably could have. Also, they weren't trained bats at all. What she had witnessed was either pure coincidence, or else the bats were being unknowingly guided by forces beyond their understanding. But the woman started her own small business, and it was successful, and she always gave credit to the bats whenever anyone asked her how she found the confidence to chase her dream, which only happened three times. The bats, on the other hand, never flew in perfect synchronization with any other bats ever again, nor did they start any small businesses, but they lived fulfilling lives full of oblivious unemployment and out-of-sync flying, which I think we should all agree to agree is the best kind. A bat can and will predict an otherwise unexpected eclipse, but you must not be expecting the eclipse or the prediction will never come, no matter how much you beg or pretend to not be expecting the eclipse. Interpreting the bat's eclipse prediction as such, however, can be a troubling experience. You may be exposed to many disturbing half-truths, and I'm sorry to say that the true halves of the half-truths are the disturbing parts. You may also have to endure sustained physical exertion at a level beyond your typical exercise routine, as bats delight in testing the limits of a curious man or woman's interest in their predictions. And the bats are sometimes wrong, perhaps willfully, no one knows. And keep in mind that scientists also know when eclipses are going to happen, and that that information is readily available on the internet at any hour of the day or of the night. If you're going to the bats for their unexpected eclipse predictions because you think it sounds like a practical proposition, then I guess you deserve what you get. 
A bat broke free of Earth's atmosphere on one occasion that we know of, according to legend. It flew through space and, as far as we know, continues to do so to this day. Why shouldn't it? This bat, wheeling through the cosmos, escorted by comets, illuminated by suns in the dozens of dozens, billions of dozens, many of them bigger than our own sun and another sun of equal size combined, this bat has, to the best of our knowledge, flown out of our solar system, commonly known as the Milky Way. This bat has flapped past wonders at which mankind has been heretofore unable to wonder. This bat may know of life beyond our familiar stars. This bat may know of a bat planet, for all we know, where only bats live. Or this bat may know of a space bat the size of a planet, gargantuan hisses swallowed up by the vast soundlessness in which it flaps. Or the bat from Earth, flying through space, as the legend tells us, may have found nothing worth noting. And even if that bat has found nothing worth noting, we know that there is something in outer space worth noting. That bat. We pick a jar. Well, a can. They're not called jarred goods, after all, even though they are in glass jars, aren't they? Let's not get into this. The bats want their cellar back. They're tired of huddling in the dark corners while we peruse the dusty shelves for the perfect can of peaches. Canned perfects, that's enough. Can in hand, we mount the steps back up to the kitchen. We turn off the light, and behind us, below us, we hear a relieved fluttering in the blackness as we leave the battery. The top five people you see at a dog sled race. Number one. The man who lets the dogs do all the work. There he is, taking a cat nap behind the reins, snapping a long exposure photograph of the passing scenery, idly reading a newspaper on the sled as the dogs sprint and surge ahead. He doesn't yell a single yah or hep at the dogs. Instead, he just mounts his sled as if by pure whimsy and rides along shrugging at passers-by like he doesn't even know how he wound up in this situation. No one knows what motivates his dogs to run, though some guess that his dogs pant and struggle in order to win even a moment of the man's completely divided attention. Number two, the man disguised as a dog. This is the man who dresses up in his husky or Malamute costume and leashes himself in to another team in order to sabotage their progress by changing course suddenly to dart after an arctic hare, nip at fleas running through his fur, bark at passing birds, and stop to sit and scratch behind his ears with his hind paws. The man disguised as a dog has occasionally been known to assimilate into the herds he inhabits, turning from a saboteur into a strong contributor and sometimes even group leader. Number three, the hunk. This sled driver disguises himself as a giant slab of meat. His strategy is simple. Entice all the other racers' dogs, in effect terrifying his own dogs and causing them to race as quickly as possible away from the swarming pack of other dogs. When the hunk's strategy works, his dogs come in first place. When he fails, however, he's maimed into a gory mess, his own muscle tissue indistinguishable from his meat costume. Number four, Greybird. Old Greybird, they say, was the best daggum racer ever was to race up there in those parts. He'd be slicker than an ice flow and half as heavy yet. Greybird raced to race, not like these babies today you see with their grab bags and have what. Greybird flew over the snow, fierce as a gale crossed the Bering Strait, blowing everything unnecessary out of his darn way. Left just flinders in his wake. Boy, I'm talking smithereens. Twarn't none meaner neither. Big Gray could put miles underfoot by the grace of man, just thump, thump, thump. Like they say Paul Bernion used to do, create all them lakes in Minnesota. Graybird could have burned them in a foot race and come out faster two times over. Man was a windswept specter who moved ghostly to the will of what we daren't guess. Number five, the breed inclusive sledsman. This racer almost always comes in last if he finishes his races at all, though he is celebrated for his non-discriminatory approach to racing. The breed-inclusive sledsman races only with non-traditional breeds, eschewing the Samoyeds and Huskies for breeds such as Dachshunds, Great Danes, Miniature Pinchers, Commodores, Welsh Corgis, and Afghan Hounds. The dogs have very little coordination, speed, or endurance, but they do make for an adorable jumble as they roughhouse and lollygag as the other dogs race across the Arctic tundra. All 
Our next contribution is from Grang Lynch. It's called The Chronicles of Corndog Part 1, and it appears to be the first installment of a series. Grang says he's still working on the recording technology, so I'll read this first one, and hopefully we'll be able to hear Grang read future installments with his very own inimitable voice. To truly understand Corndog, you have to understand where he came from. Corndog's given name was Molson, that being the last and least recognizable in a thematic series of pet names that included Drambui, Heineken, Moscato, and Southern Comfort the Cat. But the way he would look at us as a puppy when we called him Molson let us know that wasn't his real name. It wasn't that he didn't recognize the name, or even that he didn't like it. It was that he had a name, one that he knew perfectly well, but we couldn't identify. We tried others, Ace, Rusty, Artemis, but each seemed more wrong than the last. When we had all but given up, he showed up in the kitchen with a look of revelation in his eyes and a corn dog dangling by the stick from his mouth. We have no idea where it came from. My health-conscious mother would never have allowed a corn dog in the house, and the carnival hadn't been through town in years. But it was still warm, and when, with considerable trepidation, my sister took a bite, she said it was the best she'd ever tasted. Corndog's mother was a basset hound, Queen Cobra, and his father, Pseudo-Dionysus, a black lab from the Benson's trailer down the road. When Queen Cobra was swollen with pups, my father converted one of the abandoned horse stalls in the barn into a sort of makeshift maternity ward for her. He spread the floor of the stall with a thick carpet of straw, and since it was winter, set up a heat lamp that he left running continuously. But though Blessed Mother of God herself had made do with accommodations inferior to these, Queen Cobra would have none of them. Three days later, we found the stall empty, a basset hound-sized hole chewed through the chicken wire. She had run off to the woods. It should be noted that the chicken wire was six feet off the ground, and to reach it, Queen Cobra had to have jumped through five feet of open air to reach the ledge below it. Several veterinarians have assured us that this feat was impossible for a dog of her stature, especially one carrying seven full-term puppies in its womb. This fact apparently did not deter Queen Cobra. No dog has ever apportioned her desires for liberty and security so immoderately as she. Two days after her escape, she gave birth in the snow. All the puppies died. All except Corn Dog, that is. Pseudo-Dionysus, by contrast, was as unprincipled a brood as ever God created. He was possessed of exactly two character traits, lechery and insolence, and had both in spectacular quantities. Pseudo-Dionysus's lechery was what led him to sire Corndog, and for that, of course, we should all be thankful. But it also led to the dreadful multitude of Corndog's half-brothers and sisters that roamed and terrorized our otherwise quiet country road. Usually they prowled around the woods and fields of the county in packs of only two or three hundred, but occasionally they would converge into a single, teeming, uncountable mass, the mongrel horde, as we came to call it. The unpredictable but always imminent materialization of the horde was a source of constant anxiety. They were known to dig around utility poles until they toppled, leaving the neighborhood without power until they dispersed again and repair crews could get in. Their urine would leave the fields in which they bedded down for the night infertile for months, and the hair they shed would drift onto neighboring plots, clogging the augers on the farmer's combines. In perhaps their most infamous episode, they once chased a rabbit into one of Scott Thompson's outbuildings and surrounded it, trapping Scott and, eventually, three of Central Ohio's finest dog wardens inside for a full eight days. As dire as the consequences of Pseudo-Dionysus' lechery were, though, it was his insolence that was truly deplorable. His only real non-lecherous activity was to perch on the back of the Benson sofa, sprawling his legs over the back so as to make it all but unusable by the Bensons themselves and watch television. The vexation this caused was compounded by the fact that he refused to watch any show that was not about buying, selling, remodeling, or redecorating houses. His means of enforcing this most obnoxious preference on his owners was as follows. Whenever he left the trailer, he would make it a point to kill a chipmunk on his way home and, upon returning, to hide it among the piles of junk that populated the three-acre lot around the Benson's trailer. On the few occasions when his owners would venture to change the channel to a baseball game or cooking show, or even attempt to watch the home videos they had made of themselves building an addition to the trailer, Pseudo-Dionysus would bolt from his perch, retrieve one of the rotting chipmunks, and deposit it atop the porcelain doll of the Grand Duchess Anastasia that the Bensons kept in their bedroom closet. The doll was their prized possession, the only thing of any real value they owned. They had both given up smoking for a full three months to save up the money to buy it from the antique shop in Bucyrus. The thought of an evil befalling Anastasia, especially one as vile as what Pseudo-Dionysus had devised, was unbearable for them. 
They quickly relented and eventually adopted a strategy of total appeasement, ceding the den to pseudo-Dionysus and spending their evenings reading quietly on folding chairs in the laundry room. It was into a world like this, a world that needed, desperately, a dog like Corndog, that Corndog was born. The saint, amidst a very busy but hopefully lucrative time in his life, has returned with yet another beast, and the field sketch that he sent me of this one is one of the most perplexing and horrifying things I've ever seen. And I find myself hoping, despite my affection for the saint, that he is either lying or insane, albeit pleasantly so. The drawing features what appears to be a tiny horse body, or maybe a zebra, but then where the neck should be there's an enormous serpent body that terminates in a hideously fanged face with humanoid eyes and eyebrows and two protuberances on the side of its face that I sincerely hope are not horns, but very well may be. Cobroid. Cobroid is one half cobra and one half zebroid. His from his neck up to his head is like a cobra, and then his trunk, legs, tail, colors are all those of a zebroid. When I was running from him the entire time, all I could do was try to outrun him and his ever inescapable bites. While he was always gaining on me, my only solace was that I could find eventually a little animal's hole or some brambles where his long neck would be pursuing me and successfully turning corners. He could follow me through these holes, but then his large zebroid body would get stuck. Upon which I began gloating and celebrating at my own safety only to let my guard down enough time for him to backtrack his neck and head to get out of the hole and then go around and begin biting me and biting me on my leg, wounds of which have only not really healed and still will seep a little bit to this day. Finally, I was able to go from hole to hole and evade him only to be woken up in the middle of my hammock as he had stuck his neck in between the bars and was able to still bite me even when I thought I was safe. And now again, be welcome to the campfire of chills. We usually like to take these chilling tales from listeners like you. And please, if you have a frightening story for the campfire of chills, send it to outofalldoors at gmail.com. But tonight, as I have been especially mindful of those who would seek to do me, Adam Drent, personal harm, I am going to share something from my own life. I'm going to tell you about a being I have come to know only as the trail hiker. I have seen the trail hiker many times. I don't know when the first time could have been for the very nature of the trail hiker is that you hardly notice him at all. When I point him out to my friends who are hiking with me, they never seem to remember him or find him remarkable in any way, even when I know that I've pointed him out to them on previous hikes. I have not seen him on every trail that I've hiked, but I know that I have seen him on many different trails in many different states over the course of nearly a decade. He is always dressed the same, brown hiking pants and boots, a gray fleece, a black backpack, a green cap. When I greet him, he always nods back and says, hope the weather holds out. I've never encountered him in really bad weather, but I've almost never been hiking in really bad weather, so I don't know if different conditions would alter his response. When I don't acknowledge him, he hikes past without so much as looking at me. I've tried to explain all this to my friends, but they don't believe me. They think that I'm seeing different middle-aged white men in similar, admittedly common apparel. I believed this because I wanted to believe it for a long time, but I have now admitted to myself that it isn't true. It's the same man. There is either only one trail walker, or there are many of them who all look identical and are working in concert to, what, frighten me? Monitor my actions on trails? What purpose could that serve? 
Sometimes before I go out on a trail, I tell myself that if and when I see him this time, I will confront him. I will grab him and make him answer, make him explain, provoke some kind of reaction. But I never do. When the moment comes and I see him coming towards me, or I hear his approach from behind and he passes me, or when I see him walking slowly ahead of me and I'm forced to pass him, the most I can ever muster is the curt hiker's nod, to which he says, hope the weather holds out. It may also be worth noting that he has not seemed to age, although it may be that if he were, for example, 40 when I first began noticing him, he would only be 48 or so now, and the changes caused by aging may be too subtle for me to notice just in passing, especially gripped by unease and near panic as I always am in his presence. Please, if any listener has seen this man, or if you've had a similar experience with a different trail walker, write into the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com and let me know. I'm eager to hear any insight you may have into this phenomenon, and it would give me some comfort to know that I am not alone in this, that the trail walker does not exist solely for me. And again, if you have any other frightening stories for the Campfire of Chills, send those to us at outofalldoors at gmail.com as well. Thank you. It's a new year, and that year isn't 2014. That's the old year, and that year is fine for old websites, but this is 2015, a brand new year, and this year is better for new websites than it is for old websites, like all previous years have been. Bottom line, Featherwood Frames has a new website. It's still at the old URL, though, featherwoodframes.com. But if you go there, the site is new. You can see my friend Dave pedaling the glasses bike and looking off camera bemusedly right off the bat. And there's a rumor that you'll soon be able to order your handcrafted, locally sourced glasses frames made on only human-powered machines directly through the website, which is very 2015, as will be, I predict, uh, probably synthesizers. Again. But you don't come to me for your predictions about the year ahead. You come to me to hear me tell you to get your glasses frames from Featherwood Frames over and over again. I'm going to peruse the new website some more right now and tell you a new thing I learned from it. Hmm... Okay, I learned that one of their frequently asked questions is, what defines quality? I won't spoil their answer, you'll have to look it up for yourself. But I will tell you that their answer is clear, concise, and direct. In fact, I'd say it's a quality answer. Oh cool, they have a media section, and there you can find a two-minute YouTube video about Featherwood Frames, wherein you can see the guys talking, walking, and otherwise moving about. It's a real treat. I've seen Dave do that kind of stuff in person on several occasions, so for me it's more nostalgic, but for you, it will be a whole brand new experience. In that, and many other ways, I envy you. Featherwood Frames. Light as a Featherwood. Close your eyes. Close them. Please, just close them. I don't need any more... I don't need this now. Not from you... Not after the day I've had. This is supposed to be relaxing, and not just for you. So let's not turn this part into a whole big thing. How about you just close your eyes and get comfortable so we can get to the good stuff. Are your eyes closed? Are you comfortable? I sincerely hope you are, because if you're not, I'm going to feel like such a fool if I start in with the visualization exercise and you're just standing upright with your eyes open looking around. Smirking, probably. You know what? I'm just going to trust you. I have no reason to, I suppose, but I can't let all this hostility ruin my open, generous, and accepting spirit. So I'm at your mercy. If you want to keep your eyes open, fine. Be like that. You find yourself in the deck of an old-timey ship made of wood. You're surrounded by sailors pulling on ropes and singing sea shanties, and they're all dressed like you are, head to toe in thick, warm furs. The air is cold and salty. Around you in the black water float enormous chunks of white ice. The ship sails gingerly between these ice flows, steered by a man who, standing at the helm, looks like a real piece of work. The sky overhead is blue in all but appearance. Its appearance is quite gray. You walk over to the edge of the boat, toddling like a baby all wrapped in your furs as you are, and you look down over the side into the water, whereupon you catch sight of what can only be described as a seal. And quite reasonably so, for that is indeed what it is, swimming alongside the boat and looking up at you with eyes that appear to be more liquid than the very water in which it swims. And bear in mind that water is perhaps the most iconic liquid of all time, after only blood and just above thin soup. Jump overboard, the seal seems to say. The water isn't dangerously frigid, but you're far too relaxed to buy into this load of old manure. You feel no pressure whatsoever to leap overboard into the water, and so you don't, and that feels lovely. 
and then an obnoxious man named Jason sidles up next to you. How did he get on this boat? No one wanted him aboard, surely. Why don't you jump into the water like the seal said, asked Jason. I'm sure it isn't dangerously frigid. His voice sounds exactly like mine. That's the only thing that makes you momentarily hesitant before you give him a gentle shove and he topples over the railing into the water with a loud, relaxing splash that only you notice. You walk along the edge of the ship now, running your hand along the rough-hewn railing, your hand accumulating shallow splinters that don't hurt much and are a true pleasure to extract, sliding out cleanly from between your first and second layers of skin. You reach the front of the boat. No one else is hanging around up here except for nearly all of the sailors, but you glide between them like a mortal, corporeal ghost of yourself, and you stand at the prow of the ship, looking out in front of the ship as it cuts through the waves, driven ever forward by the wind and its sails, and the wishes of the wish kids safe below decks in their wish chambers, partially powering the progress of the ship with the combined effort of their focused wishing. What lies beyond those waves before you? Is it a new continent overflowing with natural resources and ripe for responsible industrialization? Or is it an old continent, its citizens pleading for God to send them someone capable of a little light satire? In either case, you fit the darn bill. Behind you, a sailor begins to play an accordion and sing a love song in a beautiful blend of all the romance languages called Romancian. And what could be more romantic than that? If only you could share this moment with someone you love and with someone who loves you, preferably the same person. You find the bitter sweetness of this moment very relaxing. Just ahead and to your left, a whale surfaces and spouts, a fount of mist into the air. Whales, according to the ship whale expert, have the wettest standard exhalations of any animal on earth. You turn to shout one man to another, to the man manning the helm, man. Helmsman, you bellow, steer toward that whale. There's no good reason not to. This is a flawless means of getting your way within the confines of a visualization exercise, and, of course, it works perfectly, and the helmsman begins to turn the ship toward the west and the whale. You cross your fingers, hoping the whale will stay close to the surface until the ship gets near to it, because you want to see its rugged, barnacly back up close, and you want to see if there are any harpoons protruding from its body that you could remove so that the whale will remember you fondly and perhaps appear out of nowhere to miraculously save you if you were to ever fall into heavily besharked waters during an unsteady walk on a certain misfortunate afternoon in the near or distant future. The ship bumps into the whale. Oops. The whale rotates onto its back, exposing its whitish belly. Uh-oh, did the collision with the ship kill it? That wouldn't be very relaxing. But no, the whale is fine, it just wants its belly scratched. But how are you going to reach down there to scratch it? The deck of the ship is a good 30 feet off of the water. That's when a sailor shows up with a bunch of harpoons lashed together. You look with naked skepticism upon the evil-looking implement. Just scrape it along the belly, says the sailor, back and forth. Do not plunge it in. You take the implement. Whoa, it's heavy. Your powerful arms put that fullness of power to good use as you lower the implement over the side of the ship to the whale's belly and begin to scratch. The whale flips his tail in delight and smashes in the side of the ship, which immediately begins filling with water and sinking. Your first reaction is to drop the scratching implement, which is good, because that thing would have dragged you straight to the bottom. Everyone is scrambling into the charmingly painted lifeboats, the wish kids are running out onto the deck from their chambers below, wishing for a spot on the lifeboats as hard as they can, and it mostly seems to be working. The helmsman is still manning the helm as if that's going to do anything. In a desperate attempt to have some kind of impact on the disaster unfolding before him, the helmsman cranks the wheel hard to the left, and the resulting jolt causes you to lose your footing on the slippery deck and slide down the deck toward the hole in the side of the ship, your hands scrabbling for purchase and finding none. But you're still relaxed. Don't imagine yourself as panicking in any way. You plunge into the icy water and you find it difficult to swim, tightly wrapped in furs as you are, furs which soak up the briny water and weigh your body down, pulling you beneath the waves. You flail your arms impotently in a state of blissful relaxation, clawing for the surface, but you can't, you can't, you can't resist your own slow descent. You cry out and water fills your lungs. It's very relaxing. And then the whale, perhaps oblivious to your relaxed suffering, your relaxing doom, perhaps not oblivious at all, swims past you, straight down. You'll be joining her soon. And you realize then that the whale's name was Maya, and you should have plunged that implement into her belly when you had the chance. Forget this. Visualization exercise over. We'll try again next time when things aren't so tense around here. But still, you know that we're peaceful at our core. So please, as you go about your business this week, take the peace from the peaceful core of Out of All Doors with you. 
even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, J.J. Evans, Steve Tartaglioni, Grang Lynch, Casey By, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdurant at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 6 of Out of All Doors.